he's like, what's extra question mark? And he's like, after that, go extra, extra. And then he's like, if, after that, ask yourself, um, what's extra, extra, extra? <laughs> and what do people think is extreme? And then like double down on that and then go even further than that. And then if, and if you do that, then like maybe, maybe someone will go like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. You may already know that using true analog gear is one of the best ways to create a great record. Yet increasingly, we live in a digital world, recording and mixing inside the computer. So what if you could have the best of both worlds? Tegeler Audio Manufacturer is bridging the analog-digital divide by creating high-end analog gear like the Schwerkraft Maschine compressor and the Raumzeitmaschine reverb whose knobs you can control remotely using a plug-in in your DAW. Or their many analog units like the Cream bus compressor with mastering EQ or the VeriTube recording channel that let you save your settings using a custom recall sheet plugin, offering a complete line of pro audio gear from compressors to EQs to reverbs and beyond. Now you can get a pro analog sound while benefiting from the power of digital. Let your DAW help you move your knobs so that your music can move you. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Tegeler Audio Manufactor. Good morning, Rockstars. It's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Sean Everett, a Juno and Grammy-winning Canadian producer, engineer, and mixer living and working in Los Angeles. Sean has a long discography of really cool-sounding records, and he's worked with many great artists, including Grammy-winning Alabama Shakes, Weezer, Margaret Glasby, Pete Yorn, Warpaint, John Legend, The Killers, Julian Casablancas and The Voids, Kesha Harmar, Superstar, Local Natives, and many, many more. And in 2018, he just won a Grammy for engineering and mixing War on Drugs, A Deeper Understanding. And you may remember that we've also had Nick Krill on the podcast, who did some engineering on this record as well. I'm psyched to have a guest joining us today that Pitchfork has called Indie Rock's new go-to sound engineer. And also a big thank you to Marcio Doctor for suggesting that we invite Sean onto the podcast as a guest. Please welcome Sean Everett to Recording Studio Rockstars. Sean, my man, are you ready to rock? Yeah. Right on, <laughs> dude. And good morning. As I was saying to you before we started, it's like a beautiful spring um, day. I guess when this comes out, it will really be spring here in Nashville. But while we're, when we're recording this, it's just starting to warm up. But you said it's, it's like a little chilly there in LA, huh? Yeah, it's from freezing right now. <laughs> I'm, it, in a, I'm in a blanket. <laughs> it doesn't snow in Los Angeles, though, does it? Not that I, I mean, I'm sure it has in history, but not um, not right now. But if it you get out to, like it's going to, yeah, if you get out to Joshua Tree, right, it, it'll snow out there in the desert, it, I think. Yeah, it'll snow. Yeah, not not in LA, though. Not, maybe I think it, I think I heard it snowed in Malibu once. 
Well, speaking of weather and how it makes you feel, what are some ways that you think, uh, we'll get into the usual questions, but what are some ways that you think the weather kind of affects your ability to record and make music in Los Angeles? Um, well, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about LA is that it's always pretty warm. So everyone's kind of um, always, they, they, they always make plans based on on the fact that they they always think that it'll come through. <laughs> but um, uh, as far as like weather and me, I mean, I uh, I always prefer it to be very warm and toasty. A lot of times um, studios love to keep it so cold because they think the, the console is going to explode. And, and, right. I, <laughs> and I hate being in those rooms. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ice down yeah. studios. I, I've done that in LA yeah. too, a few like kind yeah. of ice down ones. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I, can, I can't even think like that. I have to be in like nine coats. Um, it's sort of funny because I felt like I noticed this being in a band myself and rehearsing and, you know, my band was in St. Louis. St. Louis is notorious for brutally hot, humid, um, summers. And of course we didn't have Mm -hmm. central AC or anything. It was just like, you're lucky if you had a window unit or something, but I always felt like I noticed that heat was really conducive to rock and roll. Like if it's too hot and sweaty and you're making music that it might be uncomfortable, but that's actually good for music. Yeah, I mean, I I love it like that. I mean, I keep my own studio real toasty, <laughs> but uh, sometimes people complain. But I, I mean, I I like it as warm as I can possibly get it. I like it to be a, like Guam in my studio. Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples of the opposite end of the spectrum. So places that are really cold and icy. Um, what are some of the what's some of the music that comes out of there? Well, obviously you you've got experience up in Canada, but you get you get both warm and cold up there. Yeah, but I mean. Primarily, it's cold. I mean, most months of the year, it's it's kind of freezing, um, and I do think that it changes the music a little bit. Probably that atmosphere. I think it, it does 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 do something. Yeah. Well, um, again, again, we'll get into this too. But one of the things that I really admire about your music and um, rock stars a reminder to you that. When I prepare for the interview, one of the things I do is I go and I take, um, Sean, your songs in your discography, and I put them together into a YouTube playlist. So, Rockstars, you can click through in the show notes, and you'll see there's a YouTube playlist there where you can listen easily listen to a bunch of Sean's great records. Um, But while I'm listening to these, I noticed that one of the qualities that you bring to all the records you were doing is a real playfulness and room for experimentation, you know, room to do a whole lot more than just put a microphone in somebody and capture that sound, but to like manipulate it and and work with it in the mix and all that. And I wonder if like being up in Canada where it's cold and you're in the studio for long hours because you can't be outside, maybe, maybe that's conducive to that kind of experimentation too. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's maybe almost a hundred percent. For many years I was on at this place called the BAMP Center and it's um, kind of it's basically on top of a small mountain in Canada, and it's um, freezing most of the time. And I lived on the mountain, and then had access to all the studios twenty four hours a day. Um, and so, basically, my whole upbringing in studios was just being in very close proximity to the studio and having nothing else that I could possibly do because I didn't even know anybody there. And um, where is the Bant, Bant Center? I can't even pronounce it. Sorry. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, there's a small like kind of a mountain resort town called Banff. Um, B-A-N-F-F. It, mm-hmm. it sounds like I'm saying an M. Um, and um, uh, it's it's a pretty popular tourist destination. 
Um, but there's not a lot of people that actually live there. Um, like there's a very small actual population, but um, a lot of tourists. And then um, in that town, there's like this some um, kind of crazy. I wouldn't even know if I. I wouldn't even call it a school. It's like a center for the arts. It's almost in some ways like kind of. It's it's weird to say communal because it's not at all, but it's like a government kind of supported arts program, and it, and there's you know painters and wow. you know ballerinas and all sorts of people all on this mountain kind of studying and doing their thing, and and there's also um, record there's a recording program as well. That's very cool. And, That's got to be really conducive to being expressive and recording is just being surrounded by all the all these other art forms. Yeah, I mean most of the most of the probably. 30 or 40 first like sessions I did in the studio were not even working with musicians, but working with like, um, like artists, um, like doing installations and stuff like that. So it was definitely like the job was to be as experimental and as crazy as you possibly could be. That's cool. Um, yeah. There was another, as well as, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry. As like, as well as like at the same time recording tons of like classical music. So it was a kind of weird, <laughs> Yeah, um, kind of both sides of the spectrum. Um, there was a place that I used, and I'm trying to remember where it was. It might have been Alberta or something like that, w- where they had something called the xylophone. Does that ring a bell up there? It was they were giant grain silos that were turned into 20 second echo chambers, and it was part of an art installation. Oh wow, it, that sounds kind of Alberta ish. Um, there's a lot of grain silos up there. Um, I've never heard of that, but that sounds. I mean. I want one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, what they did is, and it might still exist now, uh, but they created a website around that, and you could actually upload a file, and then they would play it through the speakers, and then they would record it and and send it back to you, and it was oh, all sort of automated. And I used that on cool. a record for Roscoe Gordon, where he had this one long note, where it was a <laughs> song called Cheese and Crackers, and he just went, cheese, and it just went on and on. <laughs> And so we sent that up to Alberta, to, uh, Alberta to the grain silo. <laughs> Got twenty oh, wow. seconds of reverb on it, and then tried to mix that back into the final record. It was That's pretty awesome. fun. That's awesome. I yeah, I've, I've always, I always think about that. I always think like I wish like a like Capitol Records or something would do that with their chambers, like yeah. when they're not using them at night or something that you could upload your files. Yeah, that, that would be cool. <laughs> I'd like to see something like that. Well, so it's cool yeah. hearing your backstory. Um, you at some point moved from Canada down to Los Angeles. Do you want to talk about your transition getting to where you are now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I was up in uh, in Banff for years, and then um, I was playing with a, a band, um, and we'd been touring around um, Canada a bunch. And um, I don't know if uh, I was necessarily cut out for being in a band. I, I I mean, I liked kind of some aspects of touring, but. I don't really know if I I love like playing. <laughs> really, <laughs> um, I think I, I'm the opposite of a lot of people where they love playing but don't like tour. I like kind of like touring, but I don't like playing. You really prefer um, the party and the deli trays over the music it, itself, huh? It, yeah, I just I just don't. I hate being on stage and, and perform. I hate it. Like it just makes me so super nervous. And um, and then I I basically for I mean I was I was I've been basically in a recording studios since I was about 16 or 17, I think 16. Nice. Um, and, and then, um, just, there was like about eight months where I went on, on, on tour after I'd been in, in Banff for quite a while. And I, I was, uh, and then I kind of got stuck in Toronto for a little bit. Um, and I, uh, I br- briefly had a job as like a, as like a, a DJ. <laughs> nice. <laughs> for, 
for like a ton of like bowling alleys across North America, like um, over the internet. <laughs> That's over um, the internet. Yeah, it was like super wow. early early days of internet streaming technology, and and um, it would be like broadcast to all these bowling alleys across North America, Mexico, even. Um, and um, and then the, the, so that was I was still I was still supposed to be on tour, but I was kind of stuck in Toronto doing this DJ thing, and and then I was kind of like, what am I doing? And then I, so I was like, I got to get back on track here. Like this is crazy. <laughs> um, so then I went back to. Um, Banff briefly for about seven months or something like that. I had been there for about three years before that. Um, and then I was back in Banff and kind of getting back on track. Like, okay, this is what I want to be doing. Like I, I way, way more prefer being in the studio. Yeah. Um, but at the, at the same time, somehow the, the guy who had hired me to be the DJ, like I had, a, I still had like kind of a, I guess a popular bowling program. <laughs> like, <laughs> He was like he had been like flying me around the country, like go to like um, conferences and stuff like that, and just totally like weird, <laughs> uh, like side thing that I, I had somehow got wrapped up in. And so I was doing sessions back at Banff, but while I was doing like mix, a mixing session or something like that, I still he forced me to. I, I was trying to quit. He wouldn't let me quit. What and um, and uh, so I'd be I'd be working in the studio, and then I'd, I'd still have to be running the the. Um, like the the show on like Friday and Saturday night. So if I was working with someone on Friday night, I'd be like in the middle of a mix and then I'd see like, Oh, hold on one second. And then I like every 10 minutes and then I have to run over to the computer and then like, <laughs> and then like announce a song <laughs> wow, <laughs> or something. And then, um, and then somebody would tweet that somebody got a strike in like Boise, Idaho and you'd have yeah, to give them a shout out. Yeah. I'd have to do that. <laughs> and I had this crazy voice I would do. Um, and then I would go back to <laughs> mixing. Um, but then eventually I was just like, I got in my head that I was like, I, I got to get out of, um, I got to get out of, of, of uh, Canada. Cause I think that in, in LA, there was like all this like cool records coming out of LA. And I was just like, everything's happening right there. Like I got to get there. And, and ever, you know, everyone in Canada, it, when you tell them that you're going to move to America, they're like, that's a foreign country. You can't just do that. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, go I'm definitely going to do that. <laughs> And so I just I, I got this like old brown camper van that I had and I packed it up and then moved down and but I was kind of um, I wasn't sure if I was going to get a job or, or anything like that I was kind of just like kind of just taking a chance um, yeah. just like I was you know still quite young and and pretty naive and and just thought like I'm just going to make it work um, but I thought like I still had this bowling thing and so like the worst case scenario. <laughs> Is if I had like a little apartment, I could still be making some kind of income from doing this bowling show. Wow, that's um, pretty wild. You know, I've been to roller rinks here with my daughter, and I was always impressed with the DJs there. It's <laughs> something about like yeah. they're like giving constantly doing little giveaways and prizes, and like you can win this in the middle of a song. Right, right. That's funny. I, I don't know if you can really answer this, but I wonder if there's ways that that kind of bowling DJ experience kind of like fed into your ability to make a better record if you think of uh, one feel free to share it oh no i definitely don't think that it the, the only way it, it it worked into that was that um it, it gave me the ability to move to la <laughs> there you go yeah. um so you got down to la and did you know anybody when you went there or did you really just kind of go all the way down there with no connections at all um no i didn't have i had one connection um someone from the BAMP Center. Uh, a man named Mark Wilshire who actually works in like um, 
film sound had been up there and he'd done stuff like Lord of the Rings and stuff. And somehow he knew, um, Eric Valentine, um, the producers, you know, done like Queens of the Stone Age and, um, and all sorts of cool stuff. He's like an audio genius. Um, he's, uh, currently, you know, got like a line of consoles and stuff like this undertone audio. Drumbrella. Oh, there I said it. I said Drumbrella. Sorry, Eric. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, um, like he's been recently been making like the unfair child and stuff like that. And, um, he's a really amazing guy. And, and I had gone to AES, um, maybe twice a few years before that, before actually moving to LA. And I, and, um, this guy Mark had, had suggested that I meet up with Eric and, and I had gone over to his studio and I, I, I loved him. And he said, well, at some point, if I ever need an assistant, let me know if you're ever here. And so I, I kind of like took that to heart. And, and so I, when I moved to LA, I was like, well, hopefully he needs an assistant. So I called him up and I was like, do you need an assistant? He's like, well, no, <laughs> I, I have one. Um, and I was like, oh no. Um, but then amazingly, he called me back like two hours later. Actually, this was, I think, the first day I moved to LA. Um, and he called me back like two hours later. Actually, I, just before that, an hour before that, I think I had, I had, I had like a, done one job interview for to be like, I think like an like like I've never even heard of it before. Like not a runner, but like an assistant runner. Wow. <laughs> um, you go out and start like, the car for the runner, and, and then just yeah, stay yeah. in the parking lot or something. Because I was interviewed by a runner at a studio. Wow. Um, and then, uh, but luckily he um, he called back and he said that there was this um, guy named Tony um, that I needed to go meet, and I was like, okay, I didn't know who Tony was, but. Then I ended up driving over to this guy's Tony's house. It ended up being um, this guy Tony Berg, who um, is kind of like a, a, a legend in the um, the um, not just LA but kind of like I guess world music community. Um, um, he's an amazing producer, and mm-hmm. he kind of uh, he was uh, head of head of A and R in uh, at Geffen in like the kind of heyday, like kind of when it, when I was like really looking up to what ha- was happening at Geffen records. And, and like he'd signed like um, Beck and black oh, cool. Girl motorcycle club and all these really cool people. And, um, and so uh, he was uh, starting a, a Pete Yorn record the next day and he hadn't hired an engineer. And so then I, um, I was lucky to be there exactly one day before he needed somebody. Wow. And he was like, and he was like, I don't know who you are, but come to here tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right, all right. That's I'd great, this, you know, and I I'd, feel like a good takeaway is that uh, sometimes that sounds like pure luck, but not really, man. You went through a lot of effort to get all the way from Canada to put yourself yeah. in LA, to put yourself in that position to have that opportunity even happen. Well, I had done, I had like, <laughs> I hadn't made a resume, but I'd made like um like an like a CD of of a resume, and it was I kind of <laughs> ridiculously had um had DJed my resume, like like because I had been doing all this DJ work. Um, nice. so I did my like insane DJ voice, uh, and then oh, like great. introduced all the songs that I, was gonna, I wanted to play on the resume. That's great. It was like really, really awful. And then uh, Tony was like, well, what have you done? And then I was like, well, I have the CD and I played it for him in his studio. And he was like, <laughs> like clearly really not impressed by the CD at all. <laughs> I guess it was like really outrageous. Like me screaming out, out, on top of the, all the <laughs> music. And then like, um, but after that, like once he got to know me within like a few days, I think he started to realize like that, like 
that I think he actually started to like the CD. Um, <laughs> and and then and then now when people come to his house, he like still like he has it like up on this ledge and he like brings it down and he like sh- like I keep pe- like people like see me and be like Tony played me your CD. He's always laughing and showing the CD. I'm like, oh my god, please no. <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah. la is full of interesting stories like that too I, I remember getting at the time that i was out there working i had a mohawk that was like spiked black hair and bleached blonde you know oh, cool buzz cut on the side and um mm-hmm. and i went to go get a, a cut by this guy so so that my hairdresser hands me his cd you know <laughs> to take yeah. home and listen and it was it was like these bizarre songs with the drum machine was like you know high speed uh-huh. car chase Right. Yeah. So I, I love that about LA that people are just you know super creative like that and right. Not willing, yeah. uh, not not afraid to just do their thing. Right. No, I like that's what I like about LA as well. Um, so I like to ask guests to kind of share an inspirational quote, kicking us off into the show. Do you have anything that you want to share uh, before we get into some deeper questions? Um, I don't usually like. I feel like I'm like one of those people that like can't remember a. Um, <laughs> Like a up. joke, <laughs> like I can't remember a joke or any quote that I've ever heard in my life. Um, but uh, actually, weirdly, I'm looking at a quote right now that like I had like just scrawled on a piece of paper. Nice. Because, um, but it has nothing to do with audio. But I, I liked it. Um, I was listening to actually a podcast with um, the film director Harmony Corrine, mm-hmm. and he's like um, pretty extreme. His stuff, like. Um, like gummo and stuff like that. Oh yeah, um, that was uh, right here in Nashville, East Nashville, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I I love that movie. Not a lot of people love it, but um, I mean, I think a lot of people love it. But like, I think it, it's a kind of divisive a little bit. But yeah, um, I think he's really inspiring. Like that movie, like Spring Breakers and stuff. His stuff is super extreme. Did, didn't he do Kids as well or something? Yeah, like that? yeah. I don't think he directed it, but um, I think Larry Clark directed, but he wrote it. Okay. Um. Um. And uh, I was listening to a podcast with him, and um, he's like, "What's extra question mark?" And he's like, "After that, go extra, extra." And then he's like, "After that, ask yourself, um, what's extra, extra, extra?" <laughs> and I mean, it's not even like that good of a quote, but I mean, I I like that. I mean, that's kind of what I yeah. what I like like to subscribe to is like, um, you know, what do, what do people think is extreme, and then like double down on that and then go even further than that and if and if you do that then like maybe maybe someone will go like what the hell is this <laughs> good i'm glad you said that um i'm trying to remember which one it was it was um i i don't have every one of your records in front of me but it was either the killers or um who was the other guy was it tough uh shoot i'm oh, forgetting king tuft king tuft yeah king, 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 it, it might have uh, been that one um uh, but that was one of the things i noticed is that you, you had this ability you guys had this ability to uh make sounds get really like completely take over the mix and yeah. and somehow still work and and stay in it or like cut right back to the mix making sense again and i feel like that's a direct takeaway from that quote yeah i mean i just i don't know i just like maybe extreme things a little bit like um i mean someone told me that they that i can't remember who was saying it someone i worked with was saying that they when they ever they worked with a producer, they watched how they ate mm-hmm. because they thought that they worked usually however they were cooking or, or like eating. Um, and he's like, and, and you make sense because you just um, douse douse your food in enough hot sauce to drown a cat. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of hot sauce. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, my, one of my best friends was once quoted as saying, uh, you know, somebody said, like, you probably think that everything, you put hot sauce on everything, you think that it's appropriate. And he was like, yeah, I think hot sauce makes everything taste better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I, I, I believe that. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about uh, the ways that you put extra, extra, extra hot sauce on music in the studio. Um, what are some ways that you've found? So I imagine that there are different stages to a record, right? There's like the pre-production stage, there's that tracking stage, there's overdubs, there's mixing, and then there's even mastering. And then it's like out of your hands and it's in marketing going to the people mm -hmm. at that point. But what comments would you make along those different stages of, of how you figured out how to just put extra, extra, extra on and go way too far, but not like, you know, collapse and burn. Right. Well, I mean, kind of like, I feel like when I'm, I'm mixing something, you can, uh, in my mind, I, I almost feel like you get it to a point where it sounds pretty good. But then, like, I like to just, like, kind of just keep going where it's like you're just kind of keep massaging it. And, like, all of a sudden, like, a part, like, you'll just listen to it so much that, that, that a part that sounded pretty good will start to irritate you. Yeah. And, and you'll start to, like, burrow a little hole into it where, like, maybe you start just, like, muting things and like all of a sudden like this verse which was sounding pretty good now you've like ripped everything away and you're just left with like a bass <laughs> or something mm -hmm. but then like that's like that's like now like the left this kind of interesting dynamic where the next section which was kind of just an instrumental section after the verse like you realize like because now that you've brought down the the verse so much you've massaged away at it and like that's starting to feel a little bit better. But like the next section is starting to become a little bigger because it's coming out of this smaller section. Mm -hmm. And then, and then like, I like to just then all of a sudden be like, Oh, well what happens if you start massaging this to make that even more explosive and then just start being bam, bam, bam. And like making it just like, you know, massaging it to the point that it just like little things that like kind of just were like hints of things as when you first started and normally, like, I think at some points, you know, you might, I, I would have like maybe even like just stopped at that point when it was sounding pretty good. But when I, I've like kept going, like th things start to reveal themselves and that those little things become bigger things and, and more and more magnified to the point where it's like, like moments can become way more dynamic and way more interesting. And like, it just kind of, you, you take it, it take the mix brings you on a journey, which I think is, is kind of fun. Yeah. And I, I was hearing that for sure. Listening back to your records, they didn't sit around through the song, you know, they evolved and took you places and, and like the space and the shapes of it all seemed to become something else and then shift again. Kind of like dance really, honestly, that's the first thought that pops into my head, you know, oh, um, like, like, like dance music or did, no, did just you dance think? itself. Just the, well, I was thinking about oh. you being in Banff again, right. surrounded by these oh, other right, right. expressive art forms. Um, yeah. and, um, yeah, wh what did I want to say about that? What about the process of, um, so like, do you push for the, that way over the topness in the same moment you're sitting in the seat as when you, you know, started your mix or do you get away from it and come back to it and, and do it again? and then push it a little further at that point. What about the times where you, where you had something good, but you, you pushed right past it and now it's gone. How, how do you manage that? Um, usually just like a pro tools session file backups. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I do all the time go way past where, where it was good. Um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, it happens constantly. It might, I mean, most of the mixes that I feel like I'm happiest with are like a combination of like a ton of things that I've done in the mix. Like where like I'll, I'll get to a point and then I'll think I've gone too far. And then I'll, I mean, I print mixes constantly. Like, I mean, sometimes it says like mix 35 or something, but it's not really mix 35. I just keep constantly printing. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of times when I'll get to that point, I'll listen to like mix two and I'll go like, I mean, I like what I've done expressively, but I've really ruined the drum sound. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I just did a mix recently. I mean, I was, I was producing this record, so it, it was like over a long period of time I was working on this song. Um, and I, I, I remember the day that we recorded the drums and I thought like, Oh my God, I love these drums. Like, I think these drums sound so cool. And I kept just working on the song and I think this, I think the song was getting better, but the drums always kept getting worse. And I would just always be like, Oh God. And so then I would go back, I would listen to like an older rough and then I'd be like, I'd import those drums again. And then I'd keep working on the song and then I'd somehow ruin, ruin the drums again. Cause I th- <laughs> I'd just like, I'd be like, just, oh, I just tweak the drums a little bit. And then like, I slowly just slight do these slight tweaks on the drums and just keep ruining them. And then I'd get to the end again. Eventually the last mix was just like, I'd got, I'd finally got the song to where I wanted it to. And then re-imported the first day of drums again. And <laughs> Cause it, it was just no bad. Yeah, it worked great. I mean, no matter what I did, it was just like kept ruining the drums. So just have to keep reminding myself that, that the first, that the day we recorded the drums sounded the best that they had ever sounded. So why did I keep ruining them? Maybe that's your your Native American spirit name is like ruiner of drums or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, why did I keep ruining these drums? Because the drums that we recorded were it was this really cool. We like we had recorded you know seven minutes of drums or something like that, and then we found we did like you know the I think it was the old like Bee Gees technique or whatever, but we'd like found two bars that we liked and then oh, yeah. um, looped like 24 tracks uh, like like, the, like, the, like like yeah we went we we looped the two inch um like a tape loop and then and then re-recorded that into pro tools actually we overdubbed to the live tape loop the whole song wow so it, and, and and as we were doing it like the tape loop was like you know screwing up and the everyone was holding the poles was like becoming weaker so the tape was getting all crazy and it was just like an exciting moment. So it was like, wow, these drums are so crazy. Cause it wasn't just like a normal loop like you would do in Pro Tools. It was like a really like a, a living loop, you know? Cause what? we record, we tracked the whole song with it looping. The living <laughs> loop. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you want to share with us what song that was? If anybody wants to go listen to it? Oh, it's, it's not out yet. It's this band oh, called cool. Hound. It's a band called Houndmouth, but it, it, it's a song called, um, golden age that's it's not i mean one day it'll be out if someone listens to this in a while (laughs) yeah but i love the fact that you just shared something that sounded like a story from way back when but it's actually a story from today like you're getting even more experimental with stuff now doing a tape um, loop like that it's great i've been working with this guy in this band um foxygen named jonathan rado Mm -hmm. um and uh he's uh pretty well known in like the recording community of like this like kind of wild recording dude and um he's like super um super analog guy um like he doesn't even turn a computer on at all yeah. and and i'm from like kind of the opposite i mean i definitely like i've worked on tape machines a lot i mean i have one but i, I don't generally do a record and never turn the 
the computer on him. I mean, like almost, I feel like at some point at like, really, I feel like my instrument is pro tools. I feel like I can play pro tools. I mean, certainly better than any instrument by by far. Um, so like working with him is really fun because, um, we kind of like push each other a different, you know, the, the two dimensions. And we did one record together, um, where it was like kind of a combination of those two things, like using tape, like in extreme ways. Um, but then like using pro tools as well. But then, nice. um, recently I've been doing another record with them, which is, I haven't turned the, the, the pro tools on. And that's like way more extreme for me. It's just super fun. It's like a, it's like a, like it's an obstacle for me to work around. That's kind of like a creative obstacle. Cause I'm like, well, how would I do this? Cause I mean, it sounds so ridiculous. Like just like not turning Pro Tools on and being like, oh my God. I mean, a million, and <laughs> so many people do that. But like for me, it's like, I mean, I don't often do that. So it's, it's, dev- and I have all these like production kind of ideas in my mind of things that I do in Pro Tools in one second. And it's kind of fun to, to try to like force myself into thinking of how to do them in like the com- entirely analog world. Have you ever had a chance to work with Steve Albini? No, actually, I was supposed to go to Banff when he was there, um, but it was I was just I was actually getting my um, green card, and when you get your green card, you're not allowed to leave America for like um, two months or something, mm-hmm. and, and or it'll you just you I don't, I don't know what will happen. They'll but make I think you, you DJ. Might. They'll make you DJ yeah, yeah, yeah. alleys for <laughs> they, a they lifetime. They might not be able. To, yeah, but I was. It was right then that that he was going up there, and I was supposed to be up there as well. But well, he's um, I, he's I missed yeah, it. of course notable for using tape all the time, and yeah. uh, some of the things that I've heard of him doing and seen him do, it's just pretty amazing. Like you know, to do an instantaneous punch, he, he's not afraid to just cut the tape right there, throw right. some leader on, record right up to the leader, and then peel that tape apart and tape the tape back together so that you have a perfect instantaneous punch between beats and stuff like that. Oh, just, that's just cool. cool stuff. Um, well, that's all right, awesome. well, let me jump into some questions. You've, you've already been answering some of the questions I wanted to ask too, but like, um, you know, talking about drums for a sec, one of the things I, I loved about the war on drugs record, um, and many of your others is great drum sounds. Um, and I, so my question Thanks. was, are there ways to get drums sounding steady and solid in the mix? Um, and getting the the kick to sound really steady. War on Drugs sounds like a real drummer playing drums, but it's also very, very steady and it's very consistent. What can you comment on that whole balance of getting those two things together? Because I know sometimes it's, sometimes drums that come from a real drummer aren't all that consistent and they vary a lot and and that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. So tell, you know, give us some good tips about how to manage that. Um, Well, I mean, a lot of the the initial demos on the War on Drugs record were built around like a a Lin drum machine, and so the uh, the feel inherently in like the the kind of DNA of the song is that it's it's a it's a drum machine in a way, and uh, I mean he doesn't want it to be a drum machine; he wants it to be a drummer, mm-hmm. and so um, he uh, often you know the drummer will will play like. Uh, you know the, the beat that the, the drum machine was playing um and uh i mean i think that just kind of builds into it like this kind of like feeling of momentum and kind of like that that thing that you're talking about yeah, um, it's kind of really, like a benchmark really, or something yeah really really it's kind of like an, an arrangement thing that that it, it feels steady kind of just because of like the the beat and the groove that they're playing 
Um, but then, I mean, there there is like a chance that that a, a groove like that can kind of maybe feel uh, could possibly feel boring in the mix. But I think there's like a, a couple of things. I mean, I was I was trying. I mean, probably failing for the most part at like trying to do like I was really kind of inspired by like those early eighties um Bob Clear Mountain records and stuff where mm-hmm. just like the drum drums are like, oh my God, like these are ridiculous drums. Like they sound so good. <laughs> um and so I was just trying to like kind of do something like that. Um and I mean uh there's that and then at the same time the the kind of atmosphere that Adam who's the 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 singer and and kind of songwriter and kind of um guy behind that band the kind of atmosphere that he he kind of swirls around a steady beat like that kind of really creates kind of like this interesting texture and 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 like a groove like that i don't think ever really becomes that that boring because um it's like this really kind of magical kind of atmosphere that's flying around this kind of steady momentum Right. Well, I noticed that on, um, I don't have the song title in front of me, but on one that I was listening to, it was, uh, you know, just kick and snare in the verse. And then mm-hmm. the thing that kind of lifts the chorus is all of a sudden you've just got this fast, steady ride beat or hi-hat beat coming in, and then it just goes away again. And, right. um, and I feel like that's a cool reminder. You know, if you just sat at a drum set and you just played kick and snare, you might be like, boy, that's boring you know that's not gonna work but right. but you know you think you need to have subdivisions on the drums but there's so much of that is available to you in all these other instruments and these textures that you're creating around that and i guess i feel like that might be what you're talking about too yeah definitely i mean like it's just like i think it's like a lot of i mean there's a there's a an infinite ways of filling up that kind of frequency rainbow and um i mean if you have if you start off by building your song with like just an extremely simple drum beat, then you have, uh, you know, a lot of opportunity to build up that kind of place. Maybe that the symbols would take up with something else. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, was like really inspired by like that third Peter Gabriel record where they didn't use any symbols the entire album. Nice. And they, I mean, they definitely like came up with all sorts of cool things to do in the top end and, and, and a million kind of ways of getting around that kind of, missing lack of frequency and and that excitement that people are like well put a symbol on the on the downbeat you know and, and like it it have you know i've been in an infinite amount of sessions where it's like what's wrong with this course there's no symbol there's no symbol right. what's this you know where put a symbol do you have a do you have a crash symbol like like you know and like there's so many other ways of getting excitement out of something than just putting a crash symbol and, on and the what's downbeat. better than a crash symbol on the downbeat two crash symbols on the downbeat. yeah 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 <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just like I love things like that where it's like this this kind of the obstacle that you put in front of yourself that like makes you think differently about it. And it's like, well, what you know, why are we always putting a symbol on the debt? Like what else could we do, you know? Yeah. And then and, and inevitably you end up like doing a thing that sounds exactly like a symbol, like, what if we hit the amp? You know, like <laughs> it, it's like, well, it's still a symbol, but like <laughs> um I mean, yeah, I mean there's like yeah, it's just a, a million ways of, of doing one thing but um I, I my favorite thing i think it's always been one of my favorite things but in recent years i mean one of, like maybe my favorite thing ever is just like someone putting a rule up and being like this is the rule you know this is like we can't break this rule this is what we're working against yeah and it like really kind of throws you and then makes think makes you think in a different creative way than you wouldn't normally think 
Um, I like so that. I'm, I like I'm constantly that doing that. Yeah, I mean this same actually same example of this band that's not out yet, so you can't listen to it. But um, <laughs> that this band Houndmouth that um, I was co-producing with that guy Rado I was telling you about. But we um, every single song that we um, we were working on with the band, they, they'd have a um, a demo or something like that, and then that day we'd pull up um, one of those Brian Eno oblique strategies cards. And I mean, I've used those in the studio before and uh, I, inevitably what happens is like you pull it up and then people go, ah, that's cool. Oh, actually, could you pull, pull another one? Cause I don't like that one, you know? And then you pull like eight and then you're on your eighth one. And then like everyone forgets that you're even doing it and it's not, and you don't do it. Um, but like, we were like, like hardcore, like at the beginning of the day, we pull one up and it's, that's the one, like you're not pulling another one other thing. And then that conceptually is what's go, what we're going to do for the entire song for that entire day. Wow. And it was like really amazing. I mean, every single song we did in a completely different way. Um, like we completely changed the setup and, and methodology between, between like how we record the entire song. And it was really, um, it just felt like I felt like unlocked or something like, like it was just, it kind of was like a little bit life changing in a way. Cause it, it, it was just so hardcore the way that we went about using these cards. Can um, you explain it, to the rock stars what the Brian, Eno oblique strategy cards are? Yeah, it was just this kind of a, I mean, Brian, Eno in in the seventies, um, he, I guess it was like a, a, a form of, uh, like kind of lateral thinking, like this kind of creative, this new way of like breaking get ground creatively, kind of like when you have like a blank canvas, or, or I guess you hear a lot about it with like writer's block and people with a blank page, yeah. and not really know it, knowing where to start. Um, and it was a kind of a way of like unlocking creativity by by giving you kind of uh, uh, constraints, mm-hmm. um, and and kind of you'd have these cards that he had put out that, that were. Um, basically just like a deck of cards and you'd pull one and on the uh, card would be a kind of like a, this like kind of oblique phrase. And uh, by, by you, you could interpret it however you wanted to. Um, and uh, by, by using that kind of whatever you, you got out of it, you could use that to be like kind of your rule for that day or, or whatever. It doesn't even have to be a rule. It's just like, however you want to use it, you can use it. Yeah, I mean, I have I have them right here. I can that's like very this cool. One that, um, like this one, it says "Go outside, shut the door." I mean, which could mean a million things. I mean, you could go outside and shut the door. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> that could mean like get you, out of the studio, yeah. but it could also yeah, mean or, like or, you know, drop a door slam on the top of the chorus. Right, or it means like you could only put microphones behind the door. You know. Yeah. Like so, so the entire day you're tracking, like you don't have any close microphones. It's all behind the door, and like I mean, that's a that could really screw you up. But like I think, kind of in a cool way, like if you force yourself to like only put microphones outside. The, I mean, I don't I know a lot of bands that would let you do that, but um, I mean, if you if you just were to do that, like what happens at the end of the day? Like, like how do you get a cool sounding record with all the microphones behind the door? <laughs> Yeah, really. Well, uh, bringing in other art forms. So again, my my good friend Chris King, one of the games that he plays around poetry is to take your birthday, and if it's like you know, uh, if mine is nine fourteen, you'd you'd have to create a. Um, I guess it's you. You kind of create a haiku out of 
a line that's nine syllables followed by a line that's 14 syllables and something mm-hmm. as geeky as that. When I've tried it, I realized I was like, wow, I just like, it really opens you up and you can all of a sudden come up with something to say. Whereas when yeah. you're looking at a blank page, you're like, well, I don't know what I want to say. I don't have a message to the world right now. I just want some coffee. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really changes everything. I mean, it was like for one song, we'd like, I don't even remember what the card was, unfortunately, but whatever card it was, it would let us to this thing where we we would be we would record the song five ways, but we'd give ourselves one hour for each of the different techniques, and we wrote down like what the, each technique would be. So one would be just like a normal tracking situation. One would be like, okay, now you have to play it like double time but an octave up. And so like when we drop the tape back fifty percent, yeah. that it would be it would be like this like it would be in time and it would be the right you know. In the right octave but it would be like super weird slow sounding and then we did one where it was a song about jaguars so we did one with like all samples of like jaguars off of youtube um and then we did one like all we set up like a, a binaural head in a room and like set it up so like it was like an orchestra and then like did all like like an orchestral overdubs and so, so we just did all these like five versions in an hour each only having one hour to do it and then after that we just like like l- like put them all on top of each other in Pro Tools and then just kind of like like muted and, and worked our way through all this information until we kind of built an arrangement out of all these like five different versions, which was super exciting and fun to do. And, and you know, we ended up with like an arrangement, like just like crazy arrangement, like you'd never, ever think to do this arrangement. <laughs> but like it kind of just like, but the process leads to this like kind of new thing that, when you're talking about doing a lot of mixes of a song, um, mm-hmm. you know you described a process where you're moving forward with a session and you keep bringing in the tracks of the drum mix. Do you, is that often a way that you regather all these variations of this thing you're creating, or do you sometimes? I remember hearing stories about you two working this way, where they would just print a bunch of mixes and then they would just take those and try and edit them together afterwards. And if they were probably console mixes at the time. Yeah, but um, do you sometimes just sort of like edit these final two track elements together, or is it often? Uh, I guess if if you're really comfortable on Pro Tools and you're quick, it's always maybe easy to just import tracks that way. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always wanted to do that where I like just do a ton of console mixes and then comp it all together. Um, I've never actually weirdly done that. Um, I've I've always wanted to, but there's like I have like slight like neurotic uh, about like, like if I want like a section of, of a song, I'll end up importing that entire section from a different version into the other pro tool session and like making a lot of work for myself. Um, but I, it's mostly because nowadays what happens is like, you know, the record company will be like, we need a stem of this. We need a stem yeah. of that. We need a stem. We need an instrumental down and a bounce. And then the, like, it's just chaotic amount of, random versions and like as soon as you start doing these like weird um like kind of edits between versions and stuff like that actually that killer's record you brought up that that one was kind of weirdly done like that a little bit there was like i I was importing mixes into different sessions and then like it would be like an entire like um session going and then it would cut to like a mix at the bottom (laughs) Uh, which made my um this guy who's, who's who works over here he, he does a lot of like the instrumentals and like um, stems and stuff for the record companies and it makes his life a complete nightmare because then he has to track down what mix was what and then <laughs> yeah like yeah 
Yeah, well, um, yeah, spend more time on the phone explaining your way around why you can't deliver the thing they asked for. Maybe it's easier to just work in a way you can deliver it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, Crazy. So speaking of other spaces and automations and things like that, uh, I wanted to ask you about um, working with – this is kind of jumping to vocals, but working with both Brittany and John Legend, so Brittany from um, Alabama Shakes, and John Legend, mm-hmm. incredible voices and like really just super expressive. Um, I wanted to ask you what you've learned from mixing great vocals like theirs in terms of how to really make that voice just sound amazing always, you know, in the mix, yeah. but also also automating effects because I notice you 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 will take a line and you'll treat it a certain way and, and do things like that. Yeah, I mean, both of those guys, they're they're like the most insane singers in the world. Um, weirdly, I've like noticed about both of them, like those, they're, those are two bo- voices that are like strangely very hard to record because they, they have such a frequency that is kind of built for a record in a way that it's just like, it kind of fills up this range, like kind of perfectly. Like a lot of artists where I noticed that like, they're really these incredible singers that like, they just, their albums like work on the radio and things like that. It's almost like their voices are pre-EQ'd to just sit in the middle of whatever kind of storm of instruments you throw at it, you know? Yeah, interesting. Um, just no, no matter what is thrown at that voice, it'll just land in the middle of the mix. Um, but it also kind of makes the it makes it a little bit difficult to um, to mix a little bit because there are frequencies in that zone that are kind of like can kind of come across as like feeling like, like they kind of pointy in a way Mm -hmm. that you're like, Oh my God, I got to like get, I got to like EQ that or something like that. And it, it, it's, it's almost like you have to like almost watch yourself because, because those things that I think that I'm always looking out for, like, like a harsh frequency in a guitar or something like that. It's not actually really harsh. It's just like, it's like, it's what people gravitate towards. It's, it's like it's like one point of like one frequency where where like you know like a voice that really cuts on radio like they'll hit like an e or something like that and there's like a frequency like like a like some harmonic like shh, like some thing and you'll be yeah. like oh my god i got i got to like eq that down or something like that and really what i've learned is like like stop screwing with it and like just let let, let, let them let it be like i'm i'm, I'm like, like you know cuz they already like, they already call me ruiner of drums. Don't let them yeah, call yeah, me yeah, ruiner yeah. of vocals yeah. too. Because <laughs> you know, I, I felt like like I was working with John, and I would I would be into a mix, and I would look at my EQ curve I put on his vocals, and it would just be like like you know fifty points of like this insane notched EQ, and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why would I do that to him? You know, like why would I like why would I you know like wh- what am I doing to to a legend? Like, terrible. So then I would mute that, and then I, I was just trying to like figure out a way to contain a voice that, that was that enormous without like going over the top with it. And really, I mean, what I learned with his voice was at the end of the day, like the best chain that I could find was just like a Neve into like a 1176 into a Fairchild, and it was like, oh, because <laughs> oh, I, I, I had uh, read an interview with Tom Elmhurst, and I, and I know that like Adele. I mean, I've never mixed anything of Adele at all, but like I, I know her, she has a similar kind of voice where it's like sits right in the middle of a record, mm-hmm. and 
and I imagine could have like, if you're mixing and you're listening to it, you could be like, oh, there's like like a one harsh frequency here. I could just dial that down or, or whatever. And and I think like, well, like, what did he do with her voice to like, you know, contain it in a way that like you didn't just like cannibalize it. And and I read an article and he was just like, well, I ran it through a Neve into an 1176 into a Fairchild. I was like, well, what if I just try that? And I was like, of course, it's like so simple, <laughs> you know? Well, like, some, it's like it's like over the cla- classic chain, you know. Like, why am I like getting so complicated? <laughs> and do you and find was, do you find sometimes that you can um, duplicate that chain using plugins, or do you find like what's what's your take on sort of plugins being well, useful as vintage emulations and that sort of stuff? Well, I had worked on the John Legend record for a while, and so I'd been trying out different vocal chains and all sorts of things to just like get his voice to sound as natural as possible without like destroying it. Um, and I had done like a million different combinations of things to just get it to this place that I, I thought it would be cool. Um, You're like then, the Edison of mixing. <laughs> yeah. And so I kept remixing his vocal across the entire record. Um, and then I'd read that thing and then I think I was at home. And, and so I just tried the, the UAD stuff like a 1073 with an 1176 with a Fairchild. And I was like, Oh my God, like this sounds like the best of anything I've done. Like That's the great. entire time, like, this is so obvious. What am I doing? So then I just did that. And then, and then I was fi- finishing the record in a studio and then I actually had all those same things. And then I, I actually ended up using the, 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 re- the real stuff um, mm-hmm. to, to finish the record. But I mean, I, I think the emulation stuff sounds amazing. I mean, it was what, it was what kind of like enlightened me and i was like oh obviously here's all the stuff that just it worked you know yeah yeah and, and then i mean i did use the real stuff because you know if you're in a studio that has all the real stuff that the other stuff's emulating i mean why not i mean it sounds great <laughs> that's great, that's great. <laughs> yeah well um let's take a break for a second we'll come back in for uh, the second half in the jam session Rockstars. i'm going to r- remind you once again that i have a youtube playlist right in the show notes so if you want to go listen to these amazing records that sean's done just click right through and it'll take you right there uh, it's also in the blog post at rsrockstars.com and just use the magnifying glass and sh- search for sean s-h-a-w-n um, so we'll see you guys in just a moment for the jam session Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299, or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. Uh, My guest today is Sean Everett, and we're going to jump into the second half here. We've been talking about making records with War on Drugs, the Alabama Shakes, the Killers, and uh, lots more to come. Sean, are you ready to jam? Sure. (laughs) Awesome, man. Um, So let me 
talk about um, let's talk about acoustic guitar and vocals. So Pete Yorn is somebody that you've worked with, and on "Don't Want to Cry," I felt like that was a great example of really great sounding vocals and acoustic guitar together. And I wondered if you want to share advice with us about some smart ways to capture those two elements. Do you capture them together as a performance? Do you recreate them as overdubs? You know, what what can you tell us about getting a great version of that? I mean, I feel like that's maybe weirdly made the def the most difficult thing to record. Um, I feel like I've I've had more problems recording. I mean, it's it's the thing that everyone records the most in a way. But I feel like getting a good sound on a vocal and then getting a good sound on the guitar and not compromising either is is so hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, like as soon as you put any compression on the vocal, then the guitar starts coming into it, and then there's like weird phasing nonsense, and it's just a real pain. Um, I mean, I I, I I don't even know if I have like a real technique. I just I feel like I've I've changed it a million times. I mean, I've done it with like one mic. I mean, you see like Dylan playing into one mic, and I think, well, that that worked. Right. Um, so, um, oh, really? So, yeah, that's one of the things that I've experimented with too, which was uh-huh. just taking a single big large diaphragm tube mic and, and just try and find the balance spot between voice and guitar and record that as one whole instrument. I, yeah. I, I didn't realize that's that's how Dylan was recording, but that's cool to hear. I don't I don't know if it necessarily was. I've just I've seen a, like some photographs before where that was happening, and and I and like I took note of it because I was like, oh, I mean. Like I should do that more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, um, I know, like, there are. I mean, there's like I've tried things before. Like, I've worked a few times with Dave Rawlings. Um, yeah, he's great from, Gill- from Gillian Welch, and and um, and he often like uses like a 57 on yep. his, on acoustic. And I mean, he, he, always he told me there were sound. like three great or two great mics or three great mics. It was like a RCA 44. A, I don't remember if it was like a U47 and a SM57. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's true and then so I've done that. I mean I think I did that with him and I've I've just done that a, a bunch of times where like just using a 57 and then a lot of the problems that you have kind of go away cuz a lot of times when you, you you record an acoustic guitar and a vocal like your your tendency is to be like oh well you know I got to get these two great tube mics and then maybe that ends up causing you the most amount of hassle, you know, because mm-hmm. like just bleeding everywhere and like causing this like real mess, <laughs> like a phase mess. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like yeah. the, the voice that's too big to work with. It's sort of like the sound that's too big to figure out what to do with sometimes. Right. Right. It's just like, the, it's everyone's favorite thing and it's like the most difficult thing to work with. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I mean the acoustic guitar and the vocal. Yeah, and it's much different story if you're just recording acoustic or just recording vocal. I know there are mm-hmm. some, you know, sometimes people talk about doing tricks with two mics in figure eight, where one's sort of looking down at the guitar and rejecting the voice, and one's looking up at the voice and rejecting the guitar. Um, yeah. Have you ever experimented with that stuff at all, or or any tricks like that? Yeah, I've done a little bit of stuff like that. I mean, I feel like right now, today, if someone were to ask me to do that, I might like, I might just put like maybe some like weird contact mics all over the acoustic guitar um and like get kind of like get kind of a strange sound maybe on the acoustic guitar and then like try to get like a maybe like a tube mic on the vocal that like i was somehow kind of getting a butt like a 
some extra kind of clarity in the guitar as well. And then maybe that would like the combination of the weird contact mics with the, the one mic might be kind of a cool sound. Yeah. I mean, that might be, I mean, that's what I would do right now if I was supposed to do that, but that's kind of a, maybe a weird way of doing it. <laughs> um, do you like to record acoustics as stereo instruments sometimes, or mostly as mono instruments? Um, generally I've done it mostly mono in my life. I, I haven't done a yeah, I don't I don't usually think of an acoustic guitar if I'm working with one as like a stereo instrument. Like I don't generally do that. Um okay. I mean I would. I would. But I don't when I if I, my my first thought when it, when I think about it it doesn't If come that was to mind the, something that, if the oblique card was everything in stereo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I would I mean I would I, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not against anything. I would definitely do it stereo. I I generally don't like immediately think of that, but I I, I would. I mean, I did I did a, actually an acoustic guitar yesterday in stereo, but it go. was actually it was actually two contact mics that one on the body and one on the top, and it was just like I panned them completely, and it was a cool, crazy sound. It sounded cool. Can you explain to the rock stars what a contact mic is? Yeah, it's just like a like a small little metal plate that basically you tape onto um any surface and it just acts as a as a as a pickup basically and, and um you just plug it in direct and um it's a, a kind of really useful uh, tool because i mean it, it, a, a mic won't pick up anything like what you're going to get off of a, of a of a contact mic. I mean, they're so strange sounding. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people plug them in and say like, Oh, this is lo-fi. I'm not going to use this, but I mean, you mix that, you blend something lo-fi with something hi-fi and all of a sudden you've got like this really interesting tonality that you never would have thought of. I mean, I put them all over drums and stuff too. And like, I mean, you like have a mic on the snare and then a contact mic somewhere else on the snare. And if you like hear just the contact mic, you're like, well, what the hell is that? Yeah. You blend that with with a mic, and you all of a sudden you have like a whole new like dimension of sound that you like wouldn't have ever thought of. Yeah, I used to um, have a couple of those around the studio. You're inspiring me to want to have more. So, Rockstar's contact mics are often also called piezo or p i piezo p i e z o pickups, and they might just have a quarter inch cable coming off of it. And I think, like, do you find, um, Sean, that you mostly have to plug those into a DI box and then go XLR into your mic pre from there? Yeah. Um, yesterday, I had one of those, like, culture vultures. And um, it just, like, it has a bunch of gain and drive and kind of craziness. And so I was plugging it directly into that and then out of the culture vulture. Nice. But it was allowing me to get a little bit more, like, kind of, like, kind of harmonic crust on it. Well, so let me jump to another instrument. Um, Mike Gordon is another artist that you've worked with, and there was a, a record and song, a, a Go-Go e Equilibrium, I noticed mm -hmm. had some really great synths on it. And I wanted to ask you if you wanted to talk about working with real physical synths versus virtual synths and what your feelings are about those and how useful they are for um, production. Um, yeah, I don't use a lot of virtual synths, um, mostly mostly real world synths. Um, I, I just, they, I think that they're like, they tend to be more inspiring to people. I think, yeah. Um, it just looks cool. And, and, and really, I do kind of think that they sound like really, I mean, especially the analog stuff. I mean, it, to me, it really has a visceral quality that I've never really been able to get out of like a, 
like a, a, a like a virtual one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of people will probably tell me I'm completely wrong because I mean, a ton of the biggest dance music in the world is all done inside the box. Um, but I mean, I don't really make music like that. So um, I think that like it's really appropriate for certain types of music. But the, the music that I'm generally working on, it seems that like it seems like a synth that's living in the real world um, tends to kind of sit in a more interesting way in the song to me, to my ear. Um, but uh, I mean, I still, I use a lot of like, um, like I'll I use a lot of like plug-in samplers and stuff like that. Cause I'll, I'll have like a lot of crazy sounds that I've got inside the computer, but generally outside of there, I'll, I'll use like a, you know, a real synth or something. Dig it. I mean, I feel like one of the things that makes real synths fun is that they're just playable and yeah, virtual synths. I really, I'm always in, intrigued, um, and sometimes I can get cool things out of them. But, but I feel like I'm having to somehow suspend my disbelief just a little bit to kind of interact with the computer while I'm working on it, and that's that's where the challenge is, you know. Right. There's, and like, I mean, if you like have like an MS20 or something like that, and there's like the filter on that thing. I mean, like that filter is like, I've never heard anything inside of the computer sound like that. Like that filter. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's just so living in a way that I, I just, I, I, there's nothing like it. I yeah. mean, I wish, I, I wish I just had a wall of those filters so I could use them on everything. And those times where we've hooked up a session and, and successfully hooked up like a control voltage to MIDI converter or vice versa, and then got the MS 20 to follow something in the song, like the sense yeah. of, uh, of elation and accomplishment and just getting it to work was so thrilling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, that's like a, that's one of the, I think the coolest things that you can do with the MS-20 is that it will follow stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, well, so another record that really sounds quite amazing is the Julian Casablanca's The Voids um, and Pointless. There's a really a, amazing yeah. sense of space. And I noticed that you use a lot of cool things like short delays to make sounds uh-huh. that kind of wrap around your head. Sometimes it almost sounded like the delays were like flangers or something effects that you would put on drums and vocals on, on some of your records. And I wanted right. to ask you just like, how do you create other world spaces like that? Um, the killers was another good example of that. W- what do you want to say about creating those spaces? And I mean, I, maybe you talked about it before when it was like the, you know, um, extra, 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 but, um, yeah. you know, it wasn't <laughs> washes of sound. It was real short, tight sounds, but taking you somewhere. Right. I mean, there's not, um, there's not like, a, I don't really have like a real, like, like thought process behind it. It's, it's a lot of times, like, I don't always want something to sound like really recorded. So it's like, it's not, it's not like right in your face. Like it's obviously a microphone. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes I just like try to find like, like a little space to put it in that like, doesn't feel like it's just pressed against your ear. So like, it sounds a little bit more natural, like you're, in like the, like the, like a room maybe. Um, so I, I, I just try to like sound design it in a way like you're designing like a, like a, a, a room in a film or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, um, there's a friend of mine, this guy, his name is Ren Kleiss and, and he's like a really famous um, sound designer. He actually just did the new star Wars, but he did all that like David Fincher movies and stuff like that. And, I'm actually always really inspired by him because um, he just does a lot of cool things with space and just like 
the movies he does sound so good. I mean, those David Fincher movies sound insane. I mean, there's so much good sound design in there and like just working with space and stuff like that, that like I get a lot of inspiration from that. Um, there's an incredible um, like audio commentary that he, that he did for the, the movie seven. Um, mm. And I think, I think that that's just like, he's just a super inspiring guy. And he told me once like, this is even about like vocal space or something like that, but just a side note, how he was like designing a scene and he'd have like, um, he wanted it to feel more tense. So he'd have like two different um, air conditioning units like, playing in the scene. And um, like they, they were playing, they were, they would both, they were both a half step apart. So they're just like, kind of like rubbing you the wrong way, the entire scene. And it, <laughs> it just made it feel way more tense. And I was like, that's so cool. Like, so amazing that you're doing that. It was minor you know? second, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I just thought that was so cool. And, and, and in any case, I mean, oftentimes when I'm working on a vocal or something like that, I'll try to just think like space wise, like I'm like, what room is this? What room is this song in? You know, like, like if this was a scene in a movie, like where were they, you know? And like, sometimes I'll just like try to think in my mind of like what that room looks like. And then, you know, I'll use like alterverb or, or like even like just like I, I have one of those binaural heads and I'll just try to like find a space like in my building or something like that that kind of reminds me of like what I'm trying to think of. And maybe I'll reamp the vocal or just play the vo- vocal really loudly to the speakers into like like a spot or something. Cool. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Um, yeah, if we wanted to fun. go get a binaural head, what's the uh, generally speaking, what's the street price on one of those guys? I, I think they're kind of expensive. They're both. I think they're like eight grand or something. Like that. Wow. I mean, I think okay. I think they're like cheaper ones, but they're the the Neumann one is is hovering around there. Yeah, they're not they're not cheap. I mean, I um, borrowed it for a while, and I was I was just like I was using this thing on everything because I I'd been doing a lot of like with contact mics and stuff like that, yeah. and then I wanted like I wanted to like this like kind of combination of like kind of like unreality of like this hyper close like contact mic thing like pressed against something but then like super reality of like what's like looking at it and like what's like giving a really amazing like real realistic picture of it um and like blending those kind of elements together and uh so i was using it on everything and then i was just like uh, i mean it's a kind of big investment for kind of a, a wacky mic but um i i just was like i i mean i'm using it every single day it's not like I'll make my money back on do you, it. Do you and Chad Blake have a um, like a like a two person support group for? Yeah, the, <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, that guy is like, I mean, probably one of the most inspiring mix engineers I've ever I mean, heard in my life. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I remember I was like a Pearl Jam fan. I remember hearing Binaural, the record he produced of Pearl Jam, and and uh, and I mean, they named the record after his like use of a binaural microphone. Wow. And so I knew about it like when I was a kid. And so then like growing up mixing and just like listening to his records all the time and just like constantly throughout like my life and career, like, you know, I'd pull something in as a reference and inevitably it would always end up being like him or something. I mean, a lot of other people as well, but like, he just was like this like kind of guy that I just kept coming back to. I mean, so like definitely like getting a binaural mic was uh, I know a hundred percent inspired by him from just, I've been thinking about it since I was, you know, 12 or whatever it was. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, so um, let's go to the other end of the um, spectrum. Let's talk about mm-hmm. Margaret Glaspie. 
Um, yeah. You know, when she came into my studio at the Haybell studio, she immediately had me turn off all effects on her voice. And I noticed that you mm-hmm. guys approached the record in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. how, you know, and if you want to extend that, how do you decide what kind of effects to use with each artist? Um, and then also, did Margaret have you do that kind of like, did she bring in her guitar? Was it mic'd in the front of the back and the back of the amp, like a double miking? Yeah, it was mic double miking, um, which I, I love that. It, it by, always, by like, the way, I should have prefaced this by saying she is a super badass. She was one of my favorite people to ever record. Oh yeah, me too. She's a, she's a like insanely talented and like just like an amazing mind. Her ear for sound is insane. And like guitar tones, like yeah, crazy ear for guitar tone. Like one of the best I've ever seen in my life. Um, and, um, yeah, I, she's just like really cool person and, um, I love her music and, and uh, great yeah, for, yeah, yeah, she's great. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess her, there, there, I think that like, I haven't listened to it in a while, but I, I mean, I definitely remember like, like trying to get like a slight sense of realism, but very close, like a very dead dry room kind of, I think I was maybe like, it was mixing that imagining more like just like a, like a place covered in carpets, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and so like, yeah, I mean, maybe there was like a little bit of like space or something on, on her guitar, but not in like a reverb sense, like just like, like a, very short space, like just like a distance or something occasionally. But, um, um, one of my experiences out in LA was rehearsing a band prepping for um, a session. And we were in one of the rehearsal spaces there and it was those t- like everything's carpeted in the room kind of thing. And man, did it sound good in there. <laughs> I don't remember yeah. what the name of the place was, but there really is like a, there is a thing where you super carpet a room as long as it's also kind of bass trapped in the right way. And it can sound yeah. really incredible. Yeah, it's a very like '70s thing, super tight, kind of dry thing. Yeah, I I, I, I love that sound. Um, let's talk about mastering for a sec. Mm-hmm. What, yeah, what are your thoughts about mastering records? I mean, you've done a lot of records; they all sound awesome. Um, they all sound a little different from each other, different depending on you know the record and the artist too, and who uploaded it to YouTube that I listened right. to. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what are your thoughts about the mastering process? Do you always like to work with the same people? Do you, have you worked with many different mastering engineers? What, what tips do you have for us? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I feel like, um, yeah, I've worked with a ton of different mastering engineers. It seems like, um, it seems like, I mean, you're just like, depending on like who the artist is and stuff like that, people like, you know, they're like, I really want to work with this person. And it's, and it's not, it's not, it's not always my, my decision of like where it goes. Um, and so, I mean, I'm always like kind of curious about working with all sorts of different people. And there's so many people that are so amazing. Um, and I just like love their work. So, um, I'm not like super particular about it, but I mean, there's definitely people that I'm like, like pretty mind blowing. Do you Um, find that you have a dialogue with your mastering engineer? Do you like to go to the mastering sessions or is there like sort of a back and forth that happens? Or with, um, with great engineers, is it just like, send it, get it back? It's like, man, that sounds awesome. Nice work. Yeah, generally, I mean, I'll have like maybe one or two notes, like just like little things that like are, were important to me that like, you know, someone who hasn't been working on the, the album for six months, you know, wouldn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm definitely not there breathing down anyone's neck or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not like, 
that crazy about it. But like, I think a lot of the times I kind of, I kind of do a lot of mastering in my mixing. I mean, I'm, um, I generally like when I'm mixing, uh, am kind of mastering the whole time. I feel like sometimes when I'm mixing, I'm not even mixing. I'm just working on my master bus for like two hours. (laughs) Um, I'm just like, sometimes I feel like I'm just like mix it. Like I'll be mixing the guitars and stuff by like working on the master bus. Like really, I mean, I do that a lot. Like there, there'll be like sometimes hours where I, I haven't moved anything inside of the mix. I'm just playing with the master bus. Cause I think that it's just like, to me, it's really important. It's like, it's the way everything is kind of congealing together at the end yeah. of this kind of puzzle. And I mean, if I'm not hearing the way that it's all congealing there, then it's, it's hard for me to like really hear, know what I'm hearing. Cause the way that a modern record sound is this kind of like kind of compressed, you know, like congealed dimension of sound. Yeah. And, and it's it, for me, if I don't have that kind of working first, then it's hard for me to kind of really mix it properly. I mean, a lot of times I'll, I'll work on a master bus for like an hour and a half before then I really start mixing and then I start mixing. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I'm super particular about like how that is going with my own mixes when I'm doing them. Um, I'll just keep screwing with that master bus like the entire time. Um, cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, I do have some questions about that too. Um, a, mm-hmm. a, a brief edit pause. Well, watch out for scraping your mic there. Oh, okay. Like oh, sorry. That's all right. Um, so what about monitors when you're mixing? Have you found that you've got some favorite monitors to listen on or do you have any advice or do you work on different ones all the time? And do you have any advice for us about getting a level of confidence about what we're listening to so that we can get lost in, you know, the, the vision of it and not doubt ourselves as far as how we're hearing it back through the speakers? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, my, almost my entire life I've been, I've been using NS tens, um, with a sub and, um, for me that just, works well i mean a lot of guys come in here and they go like uh, like like you're on ms 10s like what are you doing get off of those you know but i mean they work for me so i don't necessarily i don't have any kind of like burning desire to change the speaker i mean a lot of people get really kind of crazy with their speakers and are changing them all the time and trying out different things i mean that's not it's not really in me to do that the the ns 10s work great for me and i and i know what i'm listening to so i feel like it's whatever you know works you know those happen to work for me because i understand them because i've been listening to them for so long yeah um, that's that's what i use too and i yeah. um i also grapple with like man maybe i should get some other speakers you know but yeah i think a thing that bugs me though is is sometimes doubting that they're consistent like i'm I was, sometimes i'm wondering like geez are the tweeter is one of the tweeters getting worn out over the other how do i right. keep checking that you know is the amp balanced um, yeah. do you have sort of any, any little routines that you go through to just kind of like check that your, your, your tools are ready to work with each day or do you just do you like not even worry about getting caught up in that? Not really. I mean, I, I listen to a ton of reference stuff, reference things all the time, mm-hmm. like, like albums that I think sound really good. And I think just, I've listened to a lot of those albums throughout time enough that like if if something was wrong with the speaker i would know that like that i had to, that i had to deal with it um 
uh, and, and also by listening to references all the time, it helps me like understand a room. Yeah. Um, if I'm working in it, I'll be like, Oh, well, this is what it sounds like in here. And, and I can tell sometimes even when I'm getting tired, like I'll be mixing and, and then I'll listen to a reference and I'll be like, so low end, like screwed up right now. And I'll listen to a reference and I'll be like, okay, well maybe I'm just tired. Cause this also sounds wacky right now. You know, that's um, the thing I hate most in the studio. Um, working is just doubt. Doubt is my mm-hmm. number one enemy. It's just, it's so derailing when you're trying to yeah. be cr- productive. Right. I think, I think that the way that I, like I've combated that, cause I, I mean, I've had so much doubt, but the way that, I, the way that I, I combat it for myself is, is generally just listening to um, like reference mixes all the time. I mean, like constantly, I just refreshing my ears constantly yeah. by listening to something else. Do you come um, into some, your studio and just listen to stuff when you're not working, or do you do you listen to stuff in the middle of work usually? Yeah, not really. I mean, I don't usually listen to like a full album um, of like someone someone's release because I mean it's time consuming. Um, like I don't listen to it while I'm working, but I'll listen to it at my house. But um, if I think something sounds really good, I I usually pull it into like like I usually print my mixes at the bottom of my Pro Tools session. Yeah, and I have like playlists, generally of like twenty five songs that I think sound cool, that I like. I'm constantly like kind of referencing against, um, just like where am I in my world compared to this? Yeah, um, I find and, that and to I, be really helpful too. Just references, and really yeah. sort of like setting your your benchmark for what is what is good while you're working yeah, stuff. yeah. I mean, it's 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 like really really helpful i think it's like kind of being been one of the best um kind of uh teachers for me throughout my life really is just like learning from other records yeah. and just being like how did the hell did they do that and then like like you'll see here like a really punchy drum sound you know when i when i started recording i'd be like i don't know how they did it like and you know just get like fed up and go crazy and then like <laughs> little by little little by little like over like years and years and years and years, you, you'll like listen to the same record like years later, and like you'll be working on a mix, you'd be like, "I think I'm close." You know? <laughs> <laughs> or how yeah. often have you ever gone back and listened to one of your references like years later, and you're like, "Man, why did I think that was all that good?" Yeah, I mean, yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, and Rockstar is a reminder once again. That's why I created Sean's YouTube playlist so you can go listen to those <laughs> drums and go like, "Man, how I." I quit. Uh, I'm oh, taking a lunch break. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, so, a couple more questions about vocals, and then we'll kind of uh, roll out here. But um, you know, again, the War on Drugs, and then another artist that you work with, Elizabeth and the Catapult. Um, both of those vocals were ones that I considered to be really sort of intimate and up close sounding, almost <laughs> like quiet vocals that are gained up. Um, yeah. Or at least that's how it seemed to me. What have you learned about recording soft vocals really well? And I don't know if soft is the right word, but you know what I mean. And and also, what obstacles should we be on the lookout for when we're working with that kind of uh, singer or those kind of vocals? Um, I I I, well, I I find for myself personally that like a, someone singing quieter is way easier to um, to record, like because it. it it kind of fundamentally doesn't have like kind of pointy frequencies that kind of like invade everything. I feel like just like a, you know, like a simple chain, like a little bit of compression and just like 
generally I can get it to sit pretty well. Um, like it may be like a little bit of room or like a slight subtle delay or something like that. Those kind of voices I find like are slightly easier to, to, to get to sit. Um, it's when someone's being really loud that I find like I'm, I'm kind of battling it a little bit and like mm-hmm. battling what, what I think I, I need to do to it, you know? Um, but generally I find like quiet voices. I don't really have any specific techniques. I feel like, um, yeah, not nothing in particular that I, I would, I would do. Um, what about, um, do we sometimes I've noticed some artists, you know, you get close in the mic and you can hear like spit and things like that. They kind of, you know, just mouth movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've worked with bands where like, you know, it was important to them that I go through and, and, you know, draw manually draw out every single little high frequency right. spike in, in pro tools and stuff like that. Are those, uh, I guess we didn't have RX back then, so I wasn't using that. That's probably a whole lot easier to do than um, manually drawing it out in pro tools. Do you address those issues sometimes? Do you, is that just like a dumb question? Yeah. Cause like, yeah, sometimes you do it. Sometimes you don't, who cares? Well, a lot of times I don't really find it to be a problem. There's only been like a couple of instances in my life where it's like been like, um, not a couple, I mean, definitely more than that, but there's been, I mean, I can think of two, right. I won't even, I won't like mention, no, no need, no need. <laughs> what, but, but, um, but like, um, where I was like, Oh, there's definitely like a, like kind of a, like a spit sound or something like that. Um, uh, and it's just the mic being the, the, so close to the mouth and the voice too. Yeah. I mean, actually, two of the things I'm thinking of never even came out. But like, I think probably the actual mixes that are on the record probably do have the spit. But the the mixes that I did didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, all right. So then, uh, another question I wanted to ask you is, what's your approach to vocal tuning? There, I said it. I said that word. Is it allowed? Uh-huh. Is it off limits? Um, what are your thoughts about all that? Um, yeah, depending on the artist and what they want out of it. I mean, there's like. I mean, I'm I'm just completely fine with it if, if someone wants to do it. I mean, I I absolutely love working with Melanine. <laughs> like, yeah. um, not not necessarily even just for tuning a vocal. I I just think it's just like one of the best instruments ever made. Um, but uh, if someone wants me to like tune a vocal, I'll, I'll, I'll happily do it. Um, I mean, I, like I like playing with that program, so it's I don't no problem with it. But I mean, some people they don't you know. Some people I, I've never tuned a word on, you know, Br- Brittany from the Shakes. I've never tuned a single word of hers. I mean, she's like, you know, she's a, a, an amazing singer, and I mean, she would never want her vocal tuned. I mean, sh- it, she's like all about naturalism and like, you know, yeah, the actual yeah. performance. Well, there's also her notes um, are always sort of going from one place to another too. I mean, I'm a, yeah. I think so, some singers are about like hitting a long note and it just needs to be steady and long, and some you know, with that kind of movement and expression are always kind of, they're never hanging out for, for terribly long at any one note. I don't know if that's really a hundred percent accurate yeah. for Brittany, but I kind of think about her voice that way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, um, there's like, I read a quote on Facebook, someone posted the other day and there was writing, they wrote like, you know, in expressive music, there are no, there are no notes, you know? Right. And I was like, yeah, it's true. I mean, like, if you think about it, I mean, like you could, you know, you could be in between like a, you know, like be point f- 15 cents and, and maybe that 15 cents like makes it feel more emotional, you know, yeah. it's like the way it's like the way a comedian 
like tells a joke. I mean, there's like a subtlety of of the way that they they kind of sing the phrase, you know, and and like that 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 makes it funny. I mean, I feel like I'm not all that great at telling jokes because I I don't know how to say I don't know how to melodically say the phrase of the joke, you know. Yeah. Like I feel like someone like Seinfeld has like a real melody to his joke, and and I feel like. I mean, I would get if I was like a stand-up comedian, I'd get really nerdy and I'd put their I'd put like a stand-up comedy routine in Melodyne. <laughs> and then I would like I would use those like those like melodic shapes and then I would take my joke and then I would tune my joke to that melody <laughs> and then learn it. <laughs> and not only that, but Melodyne probably has like an automatic, you know, quantizing feature for you now that will like tune your right. joke to Jerry Seinfeld's. Right. Well, I would. De- that's de- definitely. I mean, that's the kind of like stuff that I like nerd out on yeah, so hard great, that if that, I was a stand-up comedian, I would do that. Well, I, I've noticed when I I also love using Melodyne. In fact, I just did a video. I interviewed um, um, Melodyne when I was at Nam, and she just put up a video. And I think they're doing great stuff. Um, and w- in my experience of going and tuning vocals too, one of the things I realized that the better I got at tuning the vocals, like I could go in and totally like let it be natural, but hit all the notes and everything. And then sometimes I'd listen back after I'd done that. And I was like, well, where'd the life just go in this song? Like it was, right. it was like exciting to me before. And now it's just sort of relaxed or something. Right. I, yeah. No, I felt the same thing. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of realized, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I realized that it's like, if the human effort is to reach for the note and almost get there and then come off, that that is like an emotional expression that we respond to hearing it. And if I take that away by having it go right up to the note, hit it, and come right off it, it almost makes it sound like the singer didn't have to try as hard to hit that note. Right. Yeah. Definitely. There's like, I I feel like the the human voice. It's like such like an infinite world of expression. That like that like, it's like there's a danger. In, in just recording it and like anything you do to manipulate a human voice, our brains are so tuned into how a human voice sounds and reads that like unlike any other instrument, you can record a drum set like and like in a million different ways. But as soon as a, a voice sounds like like distorted in an unnatural kind of way that like or just anything kind of like suspect starts to get into that uncanny valley world where people are like, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, you know, like it starts creeping people out a little bit or something like that. So it's like, it's kind of the most dangerous territory of the whole record. Well, there is a lot of expression in, in the instruments and the band band and the music and everything, but you know, but you, you can screw with those things in a way that people don't really notice. Like, cause, cause I think just like our brains are so locked into the human voice cause it's so important to us just, you know, as, as like a species yeah. That like anything that happens to it, it's like what's going on. But like my my if I ran my like an electric guitar through like a you know eighteen like tuning plugins or something like that, and then like reamped it eighteen times or something, my mom might not notice. <laughs> <laughs> Records for mom. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Well, um, let me jump into some of these um well, first of all, thank you for answering all those questions about your records. Uh, just awesome stuff, man. And, and Totally, yeah. No, thank really, you. Really, again, a lot of fun to go listen to your music. 
And Rockstars, once again, go check out the YouTube playlist. I want to make sure that I'm making these for a good reason. They're a lot of fun for me to go listen to all these records. And I want you to be able to just click on it and just listen through um, and hear the records we're talking about. Uh, But let me jump to some of these questions I kind of usually ask for the jam session questions. Um, I'll start with the first one. When you were starting out, what was holding you back? Hmm. Um, When I was first starting out, when I first started out, what was holding me back was like, I feel like this, like the feeling and sound of uh, professionalism. <laughs> um, I think that like, I remember being really obsessed when I first started with um, like, does this sound like a professional record? And I remember like recording something in high school and like asking my sisters, like, does this sound professional? And they'd be like, no, They're like, oh no. You know, and I'd just be like, what? like constitutes a professional record, you know? Yeah, really. And then I spent many years, like, just like trying to figure that out and like learning techniques. And then I think that like accidentally I got maybe like when I was around maybe 21, like a little stale, you know, like just like, like, like how I'd record things. Like I'd kind of learned how to make something sound more professional, but then I'd kind of forgot the completely wild techniques that I was doing when I first started, which was, kind of way more, like if I were listening to something I'd recorded when I was 21 or when I was 17, I'd rather listen to the thing I did when I was 17 because it was nuts. Yeah. And then I think like since I was 21 till maybe now I've been like unlearning um, a little bit and like, and then just, uh, yeah, I think that, that I think that like once I kind of figured out how to use a studio, I've been like unlearning it the entire time. That's a, sort of a famous Picasso quote, right? Isn't it that um, he's? It took him years to learn how to paint, but it's taken him right. a li- lifetime to learn how to paint like a child. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like really true. I mean, like we were recording that really legendary drummer um, Jim Keltner the other day. Mm-hmm. Played with like everybody, like every Beatle. I think he played. With. He was in the Traveling Wilburys and stuff like that. He was mentioning. He's like, all I want to do is like unlearn. I want to. You know, I, I just want to get back to like this really like kind of simple kind of grooves. Like, like he's like, I, I was super inspired by like Meg White and stuff like that. That's great. You know, and I thought, you know, so cool. You know, he's like still exploring, you know, he's like 75. He's like still exploring that kind of like, like unlearning. I definitely <laughs> want to be still exploring music at 75. I want to go. Yeah. I, I feel oh, like yeah. I heard a story about George Martin, something about like, going into the studio one day and not hearing 10 K when the tape machine was being aligned or something. And, and it's probably just like made up story, but you know, like, okay, that's it for me. But, uh-huh. uh, but I can't imagine that. I'm like, no way, man. I want to <laughs> just like, right. I'll be happy to make one K records when I'm 70 and right, I'll totally. like a, a whole collection of, it'll be like, like Picasso's blue period, right. It'll be my one K period. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, it's like definitely like, it's like one of the, uh, world's biggest oblique strategies is if you literally can't even hear what you're working on. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We, t- we think about like making, you know, you talk about a professional record, right? And we think about like frequency mm-hmm. response from 20 to 20 K and everything. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I've gone to you know, MoMA in New York, the museum of modern art and, and in Boston and St. Louis and, um, even Nashville, we have the Frist here and they're showing some cool stuff, but you see these like works of art that are, just shades of white, for example. Yeah. And they're still really compelling. You know, it's like, who says that you have to use every frequency in the book to make a song? Totally. To make it, you know? Yeah. That's that. Yeah. I mean, that's 
truly true. <laughs> I mean, uh, we, recently we went to a museum and it was like the Rothko exhibit. And um, there was just like, you know, like a huge like, wall of purple, you know? Yeah. And I, I had seen Rothko's before and not really responded that much to it. But like, for some reason I walked in there and I was like, whoa, like actually no, like that's like mind blowing. <laughs> like not, you know, in a way that like he was that badass that like, he's like, this is my art, you know? And it really is texturally incredible. Like so cool. Like if I could make something that was l- literally just like the frequency purple, but you know, translated to audio and still be that textural. I think it would be so cool. I mean, sometimes like I think, I mean, this is a weird example because it's, I like some of those older Daft Punk records or something like that. It's not like, it's, they're still like using the whole frequency spectrum, but I've heard some of those records before and I thought like, like it's almost like they're not even being made by multiple instruments. It's like they found one machine that's doing this entire sound and it's like somehow like they've blended this thing together so it's like sounds like one machine and uh, i mean it's still f- filling up at one frequent like the whole frequency spectrum but it's it, i always thought it was super interesting that it somehow yeah made a, a multiple instrument sound like one and like chemical brothers too i mean like there was yeah. a, uh, i forgot the name of the title of the record but i remember when it came out like the guys i was working with they were really convinced that it was like um it was all done on cassette or something and listening back to it, it definitely has, there's a sound to it, a tone to it like that. And a cassette is like a limiting feature, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I know, I don't know how we just jumped into electronic music, but like, you know, I uh-huh. love listening to uh, dead mouse productions because I really do like the full frequency. And there's a, another yeah. um, group kill the noise is another they're making um dubstep and stuff but like somehow like the way they do it it makes my subwoofer sound really great in my car you know? <laughs> oh that's awesome so yeah it's, I mean, that, like, it's like painting for the the canvas totally I, I think i think like music that you don't generally even work on or listen to can, can like really influence what you're working on yeah outside of it like I, I mean i wish i was working with a, a rock band today because i'd love to figure out how to like see if there's a way that you could somehow make a rock band sound like one instrument. Interesting. I mean, yeah. I mean, that would be a fun thing. Maybe to try. Um, just record them with one or two fifty sevens in the room and that's it. Right. But if you could somehow like make it sound like, cause I feel like your brain would still be like, Oh, there's a guitar, there's drums, but like somehow work it so that like, it felt like the hi-hat was the guitar and like the yeah. kick drum was the bass as well. Like just somehow all working together as one machine. Melodyne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. so here's a couple more questions for you, and and um, this one is sort of a, a business question. It's like, what what resource or advice do you have for the business aspect of doing records for a living? Um, you know, if somebody wants to do this for more than a hobby, and I'm going to frame this question because I feel like you're somebody who has successfully uh, almost like stayed out of that aspect of it and and mm-hmm. allowed yourself to just focus on maximum time in the studio, maximum creativity. So rather than your answer maybe being, well, I found a manager to help me with that, uh, if that was going to be your answer, is how did you do the other? Like, how do you, like, what advice do you have for people that's like, hey, don't don't become, you know, an online marketer if you don't want to be. Let yourself be in the studio all day. How, how, do you, mm-hmm. uh, how do you do that? I guess I never really gave it that much thought. I think that maybe I'm like 
I'm possibly the world's worst business person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I'm really bad at like email. Um, I'm bad at m- like um, money. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like bad at all everything to do with business. Um, like I think that, I mean, if I didn't have a manager, I'd probably charge people like a dollar to record a record. I'm like, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm just happy to be in a studio all day. Like I really yeah. just love being there. Um, and I'm really, really, really bad at everything outside of it. <laughs> um, and, um, I noticed you don't spend a lot of time on social media or any of that stuff either, right? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I really, I think that like the only way that I was really successful at anything was just, I think from sheer hours of work, I don't think that like I was, you know, really very, any really much good other than like, you know, the fact that I just like have practiced like insane amount. I mean, I've just spent like, you know, I've spent since I was 17 years old, I mean, almost every waking hour in a recording studio. And I think that like, like, um, I, that's basically all I'm good at is being in a recording studio, the business side of it. I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, even being in like, I was in some like label kind of business meetings recently. Um, and I just, I felt like I didn't even really know like what I was doing there. Like I was like, I was like, Oh yeah, this is also the music industry. Like I I didn't even recognize almost like the kind of words that everyone was using. I'm like, I'm like, I really don't know what I'm doing in like most aspects of this. (laughs) It's just like tons of working in studios. And I mean, well, one of the things that you described, you know, of doing 35 mixes of something and everything like that, it's like if you, and the experimentation and, and allowing yourself that ability to kind of get lost in the creative process. I don't think you could do that if you weren't allowing yourself to spend a lot of time in the studio, right? Yeah, no, I think it's just like a, like a crazy obsession. And I meet, I meet some people that are kind of like casually, you know, like I, I was in an Uber last night and the driver was saying that he wanted to be a recording engineer. And he was like, yeah, I'd like to do that. And like, I could read in the tone of his voice that, it wouldn't work, you know, cause it's just like, you have to be like nuts, you know, like an obsession beyond, <laughs> beyond anything. Like it's just crazy. The amount of hours, like, and I think that like, if you just like pummel your like self with hours, I think that like you do get better, you know, mm-hmm. and it opens up like it's, it's, it's kind of like, and the deeper I go into the wormhole of this, world it's like it keeps opening itself up like you never master anything it just it's like a it just it, i i used to think of this thing all the time where i was like well if you like if you get like think of a distance between any two points and then you cut it in half and then you cut that distance in half and then you cut that distance in half and then you cut it half, that distance in half you always get closer but like by cutting something in half constantly you just could travel for infinity in smaller and smaller, like yeah, you never reach amounts. the door. If you take it, if you go halfway yeah. to the door each step, you never get there. Yeah, and I and I think about that almost in recording. Like I'm getting closer to the door, but I'll never get there. You know, 
and that like it just keeps opening up this world of infinity where I'm like, oh my god, like there's this whole other dimension of kick drums and like there's a <laughs> whole dimension of this thing that I've never thought about. It's just like it never ends. And like the more hours you put into it, you just like get into this smaller level of like thought, you yeah. know, and it yeah. and it and it, it just never stops. Well, it's and fun. I think, it's it's yeah. they're fun dimensions to get pulled into. Um, and yeah. it's really fun if if when you're done, you go back and listen and realize that you know you you actually did make a great record when you did it. Yeah, That's I mean, although thing. I generally never listen to the records that I've worked on, <laughs> I like get anxiety attacks if I do. But <laughs> well, um, one one uh, off topic question: um, mm-hmm. with all that time you're spending in the studio, what have you learned about how loud you're doing things and you know allowing your ears to survive? Do you have any advice for us about that? Not really. I'm probably also bad about that. Like I'm, I I mean, when I'm by myself and I'm mixing, I I think that I I monitor fairly not crazily loud. When I'm tracking, I kind of do monitor a little loud, maybe too loud. Um, and I think it's it's almost um, I do it. I think it's like a like sub psychological thing where it's like you're trying to if you're working with a band, you're trying to get people excited and you're trying to get them to, to think of another idea and like open up and, and, and just like kind of that kind of world of kind of chaos and that party atmosphere where like is, is really loud. Yeah. I think especially in overdub land, right? Yeah. It gets people worked up. And like, I feel like every time I've been tracking and like you monitor quiet and like, it just feels super conservative in there. Um, I don't think it like brings out the best in people. Um, so I, I feel like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's helped me as far as like getting people to be inspired by turning it up. <laughs> yeah. T- two thoughts that I, that I want to reflect back to you. One is that um, I find that loud is good for me in mixing when I'm trying to understand the low end and the power. But once, uh-huh. once I feel like, okay, I made a decision about that, then I can, I don't mind turning it down to just go do some things that need to be done or whatever. <laughs> somebody sounds like totally. somebody's like, is somebody drilling a screw into your head in the oh, background? Oh, yeah. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, sorry, they're building a hotel beside me. And it's, oh, um, awesome. Awesome. It's uh, getting crazy out here. <laughs> well, so like turning it down when you're just going to do a bunch of things where you don't, where your critical decision isn't about like the power and the low end. You're just, I don't know, you're just doing some stuff in the computer. And then, um, in overdub land, I find I have to make it loud because the same thing. It's like man versus computer for hours. Yeah. And and that's where it's like you need some power to come out of the speakers to inspire the musician in the control room potentially. Yeah. And and, uh, and same thing. But what I do is, is I have uh, gun muffs around the studio and I'll, I'll grab those. I'm a, I learned this from Bill Skibby actually out at a Key Club recording. Uh-huh. You'd run from the control room out to where the drums are and you just grab a pair of gun muffs, throw them on your ears. Now you can go like lean right into the the snare drum while he's hitting it. It doesn't bother you at all, right? Right. But I'll keep those on the, smart. Uh, up near the uh, the the console too, so that the guitar player can keep it loud. But I don't since I'm that much closer to the speaker, I can throw the gun muffs on if I want to like leave it loud but not kill myself right up there. So that's my little right. tip. <laughs> oh yeah, that's smart. That's awesome. Yeah, I need I need some gun muffs. <laughs> um, all right. So so uh, thank you. Um, final question. Um, this is hypothetical, but we're going to take the uh, way back time mach- studio time machine, and mm-hmm. you're going to go back and find young Sean, um, I guess, up in Canada, 
and and <laughs> give yourself you tap yourself on the shoulder and give yourself one bit of advice and you say hey dude here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day what advice would you go back and give yourself if you could oh my god i have no idea <laughs> that's it maybe that's the call you just show up and you tap and you're like oh my god i have no idea and you run off i don't know because there's like there's no like there's no there's i don't think i the the entire time i've been working at sue there's nothing that i've learned that was like that's the key <laughs> it's like it's just like it, it, it's basically just a world of infinity and like the deeper the deeper you go the <laughs> the deeper you go <laughs> yeah. nice yeah right. there's I, I don't really have any any I don't know if what I would say. Maybe it's like, like uh, yeah, maybe it's the deeper you go, the deeper you go, but just smile on the journey and enjoy it because, you know. Yeah, I mean, cool. that's the thing is, 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 is I really, I mean, there's no real end game. I mean, I guess it's death. And so, <laughs> I mean, hopefully, like, you have had fun. And I mean, I've read a lot of things where people say that they, they you know, they're on their deathbed and they say, like, I wish I hadn't worked so much. And, I don't know. I don't really know if I'm going to th- say that. I mean, yeah. I had, you know, I love working and it's not, I don't feel, feel like I'm work is the wrong word. I mean, it's like, it's play really. Yeah. I mean, you're playing and, and, um, and I think that like, it's such a cool thing to do for a living where you're not really working. I mean, it's easy to put that kind of hours into it when it's like your hobby, you know, Yeah. and you love it. Yeah, well, I agree, and I and I think that's a good reminder to all of us um, when we feel like it's becoming work. Maybe we need to just redirect how we're making records, redirect our right. attention a little bit. Yeah, I mean, use an oblique strategy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, would you like to uh, leave us with a parting oblique strategy? Oh, sure. I'll I'll pull the next one up because I, I you got to leave it to chance. I can't just say one. Cascades. <laughs> cascades yeah <laughs> all right cool man. Yeah. i wrote awesome. it down rock stars right. thanks for listening um sean thank you so much for being on recording studio rock stars with us total blast to hang out with you um uh, i know i'm not alone in this but I, I hope i get to make a record with you one day and oh um, man i'd do love some, to do one with you yeah thanks do some oblique strategies in the studio and just kind of take it back to fun making records again awesome thanks man um, let the rockstars know how they can find you, learn more about you. Uh, is there anywhere they should go to to connect oh. or anything like that? Um, I mean, I have an Instagram, but it's complete garbage. <laughs> right. Maybe um, maybe yeah. Wikipedia. I, I know there's some great stuff yeah. there about your discography and and um, your story and everything. Awesome. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, um, or maybe I should just make a better Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had some really great photos of you at the Grammys, like dressed in wild clothes. You looked like, you know, like, um, you know, I don't know, a white prince or something like that. You just had some cool, yeah. cool outfits on. So I applaud well, uh, you that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I was, uh, mostly proud to be on the worst dressed list of the year. <laughs> <laughs> did they give, did they have that credit? Did you make that, uh, that distinction? There was some website and they had, uh, they had like a like a people could vote for the worst dressed of the Grammys and oh, awesome. actually not even the Grammys like I think the year in fashion and somehow I was in there. That's awesome. And um, I beat everybody. I beat like um, little kid. I beat everybody. 
I had the, the most votes for the worst. That's awesome, man. Great. Cool, dude. Very proud of that. Well, thank you again for hanging with us. And I look forward to meeting you in person next time you're in Nashville. Uh, we'll go get a, a, you know, a taco with hot sauce, you know, something like awesome. that. Awesome. Hot sauce on everything at the local Mexican joint. And um, yeah, man. Great. Any parting thank words? Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Okay. Thanks again. Yeah. I'll, I'll see you soon too. All right. Thanks so much, dude. Cheers. Okay. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.